Welcome to Badass Digital Nomads, where we're pushing the boundaries of remote work and travel, all while staying grounded with a little bit of old school philosophy, self-development, and business advice from our guests. Hey there, Kristen from Traveling with Kristen here, and welcome to episode 165 of Badass Digital Nomads. Today, by popular demand, we have an interview talking about traveling as a family, and in this case, traveling in an RV. My guest today is Michael Boink, who has been able to sustain an RV lifestyle for more than a decade, living with his wife and two kids while traveling around the United States. Nearing close to retirement now, Michael has reinvented himself and his career multiple times. He talks about after getting laid off around September 11th, how he was able to go independent and work for himself as a freelancer, eventually starting his own company and today finding a remote job. In today's conversation, Michael shares how he and his wife came up with the idea to hit the road and experience van life, and also the steps that they took to make that transition possible, how much money they saved, what kind of RV they purchased, and how they transitioned their kids from the traditional school system to homeschooling and world schooling. He also shares tips on how he was able to stay productive and sustain his lifestyle while working from the van, and also how he and his family were able to make friends and find more community while traveling than they did while living at home, even as self-proclaimed introverts. At the end, we do a fun lightning round where I pelter him with van life related questions. And he also shares about his new memoir called Driven to Wonder, Eight Years in an RV with Two Kids. Just a note on today's interview that the audio quality is not as good as it usually is on my guest's end because unfortunately he accidentally selected the wrong input for his microphone when recording the audio, but my editor Gaston and I worked our magic and did what we could to improve the quality for you for your listening pleasure. These things happen sometimes in the podcast world, but it was a great interview that I didn't want to lose that value for you. And hey, the show must go on. Michael and his wife, Carissa, have been featured in mainstream media outlets such as the Huffington Post, Seattle Times, Tiny House Magazine, and more. I hope you enjoy our conversation today. And if you're planning on hitting the road sometime soon, make sure that you have insurance coverage. You can sign up for emergency travel medical insurance or monthly remote health insurance through Safety Wing using our link in the show notes. Safety Wing offers nomad insurance for digital nomads and world travelers that you can get for short-term trips or on a monthly plan starting at $42. And they also have global health coverage starting at $111 per person per month that can be for individuals or remote employees and teams. Safety Wings premium health insurance works in every country across the world, and you can get coverage while residing in more than 175 different countries. 
Use our link in the show notes to get more information and to check prices. And I hope you enjoy today's show. Hey everyone, welcome back to Badass Digital Nomads. And today I am joined by Michael Boink, who is an RV expert, (laughs) a (laughs) self-made expert, author, freelancer, web developer. He's done a lot of things. He's a jack of all trades, as many of us are. And he is on the show today to talk with us about how to survive and thrive while living in an RV for almost 10 years, I believe, with two kids and, and letting your kids grow up in the RV before sending them on their way into the world, into real life uh, as adults. And so he has survived to tell the tale and he's here to help give us some insight into that. I know a lot of our listeners have asked for more tips on traveling as a family and RV life and van life. So welcome, Mike. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And where are you joining us from today? We are in Ava, Missouri, which you've never heard of. Um, If you kind of triangulate Springfield, Missouri and Branson, Missouri to the, I guess it'd be the Northeast, we're we're down there in the the middle of the Ozarks. Oh, okay. That's actually a place I haven't been to, but it sounds nice. We had never been here either before moving here. Oh, where were you from originally? We launched out of uh, Holland, Michigan. Okay. So not too far away. Well, before we get into the RV stuff, bring us back to where it all started. I saw in your book, which we'll link to in the show notes, it's um, called Driven to Want, Driven to Wonder, not Wander. We'll talk about that too. I saw that one of your biggest regrets was not jumping into this lifestyle sooner. And so bring us back to, you know, the very beginning of when did you start to have this idea of living in an RV and hitting the road? And how long was it between when you first had the idea and when you actually did it? Okay, so it goes back to actually I got laid off out of the corporate world in 2002. So it's one of those post 9-11 events. Uh, I had a job in West Michigan. It's the office furniture central you know, headquarters of the world. So I was working at a large office furniture company. 9-11 came, shrank the market, uh, I think three rounds of layoffs, and I found myself at home. And in looking for a job, started networking through all my previous employers and got didn't get a job offer, but I got project offers. And so I thought, well, I'll string these together. And, uh, you know, worst case, we had some uh, severance pay that was kind of a landing pad for us. You know, worst case, you know, a couple months from now, I'll be looking for a job again. Well, that never really happened. I kept finding more and more jobs. So that that corporate layoff set us up to be location independent because all those jobs were just, they were online web development jobs. And um, at some point we realized, hey, we could do this anywhere. And at the same time, we were homeschoolers. And so my office was in the basement. So upstairs would be my wife homeschooling the kids and I would be downstairs working and at the same time, kind of around all of this, there was a bit of a housing crisis going on, you know, not unlike kind of what we're seeing now a little bit. And we just, we felt like we were going to die in that house. Like we just didn't see a future that had us going anywhere other than just living there, getting old and dying. And that was our first house. And then uh, at some point, 
it just I don't, we don't, we can't remember who actually came up with the idea. It was like, hey, we could just sell all of this, you know, and, you know, and jump in an RV and do this anywhere because the only thing really holding us in that location was kind of a church church community uh, and, and a few friends around town. Other than that, my my income was location independent. We could homeschool anywhere. So we just we called it actually our pipe dream. We just more to have conversation than anything. We would just email links back and forth to each other and. We were in the middle of telling a friend this kind of pipe dream idea, and he just he looked at us and, well, why don't you do that? And we uh, at that point we decided, let's look for reasons to not do this. Certainly, someone's going to tell us that this is just not possible, or you shouldn't <laughs> do it. Um, you're stupid. You're crazy. Whatever. Uh, so you know, we talked to the bank, and we talked to you know, we looked at our finances, and looked at our you know our housing situation, our mortgage. And we just we never found any good reason to not do it. We really we looked at our income and what RVs cost. Like, you know, I think we can buy an RV and still keep the house. And we were we didn't go all in at first. It's hard to make decisions. Like, am I buying an RV to live in for one year, two years, or ten years? Yeah. Do I buy you know do I buy do I buy a truck that's going to be good for a year or two, or a truck that's going to last ten years? And you know, are we going to like this? Are we you know is the RV going to fall apart? Is you know the money going to run out? So we, we kind of framed it with a year. Let's just, let's call this our one-year adventure that helps us figure out, you know, what kind of RV can we live in for a year? What kind of truck can we deal with for a year? What kind of income do we need for a year? Um, so sometimes, and we found like, sometimes constraints are good because they just, they help you make decisions and kind of move forward in a certain direction. So so we, we called it our one-year family adventure. We, we kept our house, but we found a friend to live in it while we were gone. Um, just so that there would be someone there and it wouldn't kind of you know, go to pieces without us. And, and we launched. So it was uh, September of 2010. Wow. And how old were your kids at that time? They were 12 and 13. And what was their opinion on this transition? So we've got two kids. I, my oldest is a boy and the youngest is a girl. Um, my son was, he's more the more outgoing one. He was all about it. Excited to go. My daughter was not happy to go. She had just kind of recently made some friends in the neighborhood. She was always a little more change averse uh, than my son was. You know, so we, you know, I don't know if you read Steinbeck. Steinbeck says, you know, trips continue in your mind long after they've stopped in time and space. You know, so after you've after you've stopped traveling, it kind of, you know, and even this book is evidence of that. I'm obviously still on the trip, you know, three years later. <laughs> um, but with, with our daughter, it's like we realized that the trip hadn't started for her yet. Even though she was moving in time and space, she really was not on the trip with us. And it took kind of a few, well, it took a, a calamity, really. We, uh, one of the things that we did for money was we were doing um, training around the, the, the software. So we would schedule training classes and then drive there and run a hotel room or run a hotel conference room and do the classes. We had one scheduled in Atlanta, Georgia, and on the way to Atlanta, we passed like a convoy of like 60 power line trucks. And I've since learned that if you're on the highway and you drive past a line of 60 power line trucks, that's not a good thing. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, because what it means is bad weather is coming in and they are driving to where they think they're going to be needed to get electric running again. So what was happening was a big ice storm was coming into Atlanta. And we managed to get into Atlanta right before it hit. And then literally like two inches of ice in Atlanta, which just decimates that town. They don't have snow plows and 
like you know, northern cities would have. So they put us there in the hotel. Like we, we basically were there twice as long as we had planned to be. But at the end of all of that, we, we were going back to the RV, and my, and my daughter said, you know, I just want to go home. But the way she said home just sounded different to me. I'm like, well, do you mean back to the RV is home or back to Michigan in the house? And she said, I don't care. I just want to be back home. And pretty much that's where she joined us on the trip. And it just it kind of took that, you know, that kind of bad experience to kind of reorient her and, and get her to join in. Oh, yeah. You know, brings me back to when I was moving from my hometown of Vero Beach to St. Augustine. And my dad wanted us to move. I, had, I don't know why he wanted to move. He got a new job. And I was 12 turning 13. And my brother was, he was all in. I did not want to move because I was in, you know, about to go into high school the next year. So I, like my whole life had been in this other town and I had so many friends and everything. But I remember my dad telling me, you're going to make new friends. And then I became best friends with my neighbor. And I remember the first day we moved into our new neighborhood. And then my life completely changed from, from that. And it's tough with kids, especially when they're teenagers, because they do have a strong opinion either way. And from all of the families I've talked to, they try to be diplomatic with their kids because you know, they're doing this alternative lifestyle where they're taking their kids out of traditional school or they're continuing homeschool, but in a more remote and mobile fashion. And so, you know, they want their kids to have that agency and that input into the family decisions. But at the same time, being the parents, they want to, you know, kind of take charge and do what they think is best for the family. And so yeah. I'm glad that my parents forced me to move to St. Augustine <laughs> because I, you know, I think my life went in a better direction. And my brother, he, uh, St. Augustine's a big surf town. So my brother became a surf photographer. I became a, a surfer and that love of surfing really was the impetus for my travel at the beginning. And so here I am, you know, traveling with Kristen, but I think that that move to St. Augustine and getting into surfing and traveling to Puerto Rico and California and Mexico, that, that those were the first trips that I ever took where they were all related to surfing, studying abroad in Australia and, and going to Hawaii. And, and yeah, that probably wouldn't have happened had we stayed in Vero beach. So it's so it's like that butterfly effect, you know, one little, change in direction can really take you to a different destination over time. And you never know what would have happened either way, but it's it's interesting to hear how your daughter came on board. And um, how old is she now? She'll be 24 in August. And so did your kids go to college or what did they do after this experience? She got married. So she came and she actually settled with us here in Ava for a little while and then um, moved out and, and got married. She lives about three hours to the west of us now, still in Missouri. And son runs a shipping department at a manufacturer back in West Michigan. They live in one town then? Yep, yep. Although my son has traveled a lot. He, he did a YWAM, which is a youth mission um, endeavor. So he's been to Australia and Germany and several, he went to New York City. This is when I knew traveling was, had been valuable. He, he left us at 18 years old 
you know, I think within a couple months had scheduled himself a trip to New York City. There's a, a play or something he wanted to see. So he just he booked himself a flight. And I'm like, man, at 18, I wouldn't have never been <laughs> to fly alone to New York City and just, you know, walk out on the streets and, and go look at a play. Like, there's just no way I ever would have done it. Yeah. And so they value that experience. Like, do you guys ever talk about that or do they reflect on, you know, growing up in an RV or what is their feeling about it? We haven't had long, deep discussions a lot. I did when when the book was nearing the end. I'm like, I, I need you guys to just write me a couple paragraphs now as, you know, mid 20 somethings. How, you know, how do you feel about what we did? And so they, they both did that for me and it's in the back of the book. Because um, you don't hear that a whole lot in the traveling world. You hear a lot about people who are doing it or currently doing it, but you don't you don't hear that with perspective from the kids about what it was like to grow up that way. Yeah, can you give us a sneak peek to the back of the book? Because <laughs> I, I talked with a lot of people, but their kids are still young. Yeah. So my son, he's kind of ambivalent about it. He, he's like he sees he sees that travel helped him and it helped him travel, and he still enjoys travel. But he's like, there's just there's parts in life now, like he has a house with his girlfriend and like we have neighbors that don't move. And you know, how, do I, how do I deal with these neighbors that are just always the same? Like, you know, I didn't learn how to be a neighbor because we were just always you know, on the move and they're different neighbors. So there's, there's odd parts of that where it doesn't feel like he got you know, the training or the experience to kind of cope with, you know, quote unquote, normal life. Yeah, I've heard that from the, uh, the sailing families as well. I just talked to another one and the dad was saying, you know, we'd talk about meeting people and he's like, well, you know, you just pull into the port or the marina and you see who's there and then you may or may not ever see them again. And that just kind of becomes normal. And then when you go to a, a one place, it's almost weird that everyone's just there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I've noticed that during the pandemic, I've been in Miami and the people who live in my building, they've been there for 14 years. And I'm like, oh, oh my wow. God, I've been here for a year and a half. I got to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, I feel stagnant if I'm in one place for too long, but that's just me, you know, once a nomad, always a nomad. Um, and then what about your daughter? I'd say she's kind of sentimental about it. But she's not in a position right now where they're going to do much traveling. But I had her. She's a really good editor. So when it came time to copy edit the book, I, I, I did it. My wife did it. And I sent a couple copies for her to go through. And I just got some feedback, like, going through this, you know, and crying a lot. Kind of oh. so, uh, yeah, it is sentimental. I was just, just rereading some of my journal from the past year. And I was contemplating why are travel memories so indelible in our minds? And, you know, I can trace back to specific days that I had when I was 16 and family road trips or the first time on an airplane or walking on the beach in La Jolla, California, or sitting in the back of a truck riding down the street in Puerto Rico. Like I can remember entire days of touring Seattle with my mom and where we went for dinner this Italian restaurant and we went to the library. And it's like, for some reason, you know, in normal quote unquote life, all the days can blur together and it's really hard to distinguish. But then for some reason with travel, I think it's because it's a new, new surroundings and your brain must 
click into some other type of observational gear, which I need to research more <laughs> before I start, uh, yeah, you know, I this think is it, I think theories. it actually forces you to live in the moment. Yeah. Because you have to be in the moment. You have to be like, okay, I don't know where the grocery store is, so I really have to be looking for it versus just being on autopilot because it's the same store you've been going to for 10 years. Yeah. Like I remember going to the grocery store in Mexico and not speaking Spanish and being embarrassed. <laughs> That'd be fun. <laughs> But I've also read an observation that it's travel is the best way to be childlike again. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true because there's just so much new. I mean, if you're in a completely new area, there's there's nothing that you've seen before. I mean, it's you're experiencing, and you know that's why I have wonder in the title of the book because it's it's that's what we chased was the wonder of it. Yeah, the wonder more than the wander. Yeah, the wander was a means to an end, and the wonder was the goal. That's a very important point because sometimes when people look at a nomadic lifestyle or a location independent lifestyle, the wandering becomes the goal, at least at first. But, but that in and of itself is just the means to an end. Like it's just an activity of traveling and wandering, but it's like, what's happening while that's going on? That is what I think is so meaningful and, you know, not to say that any kind of travel is, is meaningful. Um, but what I was writing about in my journal was kind of going back and forth between this was when I was in the midst of writing my book. So on one hand, philosophers like Seneca, the Stoic philosopher, he wrote this essay on travel where he's basically saying that travel is a waste of time to, to give you the cliff's notes version of it and that you know people that travel they're running from something or they're just mm -hmm. trying to distract themselves from life um yeah. but you know that can be true and this is part of the duality of life is that two sides of every story or three sides of the story can all be true at the same time and so i was thinking like yes okay, I guess if you traveled forever and that was all you did and, you know, you didn't work or you didn't contribute to society or you didn't create anything, then like maybe that would be a waste of time because you need to apply what you're learning in life regardless of where you are. But then I also think of how backwards the world would be and how less advanced the world would be if people didn't travel and how less, you know, it would be less interesting because people wouldn't be mingling together or migrating around. And so, so much value has come from travel. So much innovation has come from the movement of people. And I see Seneca's point, and he was probably thinking of the Roman elite that would just go off to their beach house in Italy and oh, drink sure. a bunch of wine, which sounds <laughs> yeah. good too. Um, but then, yeah, on the other hand, without traveling and people to, you know, go out and explore, then a lot less would have occurred. Now, of course we can get into the, you know, the wars and battles and all of that held <laughs> constant, you know, if we're just looking at the, the human, um, like fulfillment aspect and then also things just simply happening because of people moving around. I think it, that the pros definitely outweigh the cons, but um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts more on that of having, having circled the country. 
there's a twin quote that comes to mind there that travel is fatal to prejudice and bigotry and a bunch of other kind of bad things that I think helps offset some of that. Because I agree, just travel travel for idle curiosity, you know, just to fill your time. Um, it isn't going to be fulfilling in the long run. But if you're, and that's one of the reasons we did it was we were homeschoolers. And, you know, it's always funny to me when people ask, well, okay, so you travel, what'd you do for homeschool? I'm like, we traveled. <laughs> <laughs> Like anything else was just sort of icing on the cake, but one of the issues, I mean, we love West Michigan, but West Michigan tends to be kind of a, you know, a monoculture in several respects. And yeah. It's like we need to, you know, what we had read was a lot of stories of homeschooling kids who kind of blew up when they went to college because all of a sudden you're exposed to all these different cultures and ideas. And so we wanted to, you know, if we're going to do that, if they're going to blow up, let's at least let them blow up in a coached environment where we're there to to help them through the process. So let's go travel and, and hopefully meet people that we wouldn't meet in Holland, Michigan and, and experience things that we wouldn't experience in Holland, Michigan. And, you know, that, you know, and every travel can be its own bubble, certainly. And I think there's some efforts out there to improve it. Um, but it's still largely an you know, upper middle class white, you know, activity. But I think we still, it, it was a much better experience, I think, than what we would have gotten just staying home. Yeah, and and had you traveled much before buying the RV? I grew up RV camping, so I'm, and uh, my dad was a municipal worker with and spent a long tenure in one place. We had a lot of vacation, so by the time I was an early teen, he had like five weeks of vacation, and he could take it all at once. So we took these long RV road trips from Michigan to Colorado um, and explored some of the mountains and stuff with a jeep. And my wife grew up camping as well, so they were more like the pop-up camper, local camping kind of style. So mostly mostly travel in the country um, and mostly by RV and campers. And then you, you know, went into the nine to five grind. And then after the layoff, which, you know, usually losing your job is very stressful and a negative experience. But I always like hearing how people turn it into a positive and how that kind of became a turning point in their life to something new. Because if you hadn't have been fired, you might've stayed longer in that job and in that have. lifestyle. Um, you know, I had, I had uncles that had retired from this company I and mean, it was the place to work in West Michigan. If you got a job there, you were, you know, it was it. You were done looking. Yeah. And I, I absolutely would have stayed there because it was the safe thing to do. The golden handcuffs. Yeah, Exactly. Yep, the pretty prison, I called it. <laughs> the pretty prison. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that kind of sums up the American dream in, 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 a, <laughs> in a way. But living in Miami now and meeting so many people from Latin America, I have a different perspective of the American dream. Because I have more compassion for the American dream. I think definitely born into a bit of privilege, you know, in America in general, and then I was just talking about on the podcast recently how I went to dinner with friends from all different countries. And one of them was from Bolivia, which has one of the, you know, the lowest costs of living, but the, the people earn such a low amount. I don't know what the minimum wage is, but I think he was saying like $300 a month is what he could make if he lived there. And he's like here in the U S it's like unlimited. And he was just so excited about having the opportunity to live the American dream. And like, 
I can definitely appreciate that, especially in the location independent community where there's a lot of geo arbitrage of, you know, people earning high incomes and then moving to places with a really low cost of living, which is totally fine. But I think it's always good to, you know, also see it from the other side where there's people in those countries that would most certainly like to move somewhere else or have more opportunities. So I hope that remote work is opening up a lot of doors uh, for people that wouldn't otherwise have access to higher paying physical jobs. But let's dial into some of the specifics and particulars of how you actually made this transition. Do you remember how much money you had saved or how did you calculate how much money that you were going to need and then how long did that planning process take? Oh, well, that was a long time. Yeah. Those. <laughs> I remember the cost of what we bought. So this is in 2010, and RV, the RV market has gone crazy. So it's, mm-hmm. I don't even know if we could get back into it these days. Back then, I bought our first RV was, I think we bought a used one for 15000 And then I bought a truck for ten, And so for... For twenty five, call it thirty thousand. By the time we outfitted everything, that got us on the road. And then, from an expense perspective, we found, and again, being from West Michigan, and our house, I think our house sold for like one hundred fourteen at the time. So whatever mortgage that works out to, um, for us, living on the road cost about the same per month as it did to not live on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the gas than, and the maintenance yeah, and things. Yeah, so basically we traded a mortgage for, for a fuel bill. Um, <laughs> but the, the nice thing was the fuel bill was variable, you know. So if you know, gas never got as expensive it is, as it is now, but there were spikes. And if we worried about it, we would just not drive as much. Like, well, I guess we'll just kind of camp out here for a while and not drive. And we can save on some money that way. Where a mortgage is a mortgage, and you're going to pay it regardless. So we were a little more flexible being in the RV. But for the first year, we did carry the house as well, and we lived off, you know, kind of need a little more of our savings to do that. Um, but then after the first year, we went back and sold the house. And actually, at that point, we paid off all of our debt, um, which was really nice for about a year. <laughs> and then, so then we were just living, living just um, on the road. And how much were you working? I know you were doing some freelance projects, do you remember, was it more part-time or full-time? You know, I didn't track hours unless it was for a client project. So I never tracked my total hours because I was the only one who cared and I never really cared it. It was at least a full-time job, but it was um, variable in that I could, you know, I could work on weekends or not because it's easier in the RV world. If you can, most people are campers and they come in, you know, on Friday nights and they leave on Sunday morning. So if you can vary your schedule to not be moving at the same time they're moving, it just works out easier. And so oftentimes we would we would jump campgrounds on a Tuesday or Wednesday just because it was easier and then I might you know work on a Saturday. There, honestly, there were days like the only way we knew what day of the week it was was, oh look, there's a bunch of RVs coming in the campground. It must be must be Friday. <laughs> or or they're all leaving. It must be Sunday morning. Yeah. And because otherwise, yeah, we would just totally lose track of time. Yeah, I noticed that I went camping at Jenny Springs last year in Florida. It was freezing that that weekend, and it was the same. We we saw the flow in and out of the campground. It was like a ghost town one day, and then it was p- 
packed the next day. Oh, absolutely. You can wake up on a, on a, like a Monday morning or a Tuesday morning and have a whole place to yourself. Yeah. And how did you work with internet back then? I guess it's a bit easier now, but did you use your mobile phone or Wi-Fi at the campgrounds? Well, when we left, so even then there were still, there were, there were two people, um, Chris Dunphy and Cherie Brard, they were they were on a site called RV Mobile Internet. Um, so even then there was already gear. Um, campground Wi-Fi proved to never be reliable. Like you quickly learn they, they may have it and it may show up, but you could rarely actually work on it. Mm-hmm. I remember when we left, I, I had a basically an air card, a 3G air card that we got, I don't know, 10 gigs a month. <laughs> And that's basically uh, what we flowed everything through. And we made it work, even with, with work and the kids doing some of the school online. Wow. Yeah, now it's a lot faster. Did you end up making the same amount or more that as you did in your corporate job? Some years, yes. Some, no. It was quite variable. And that, that's always the hard part. Well, it's been the hard part for us um, being self-employed. Is there were periods of time we went, we had six figure years, and then we had um, then we go stand in line for food years. Mm-hmm. One of the things that happened to us while so we when we left, I had a, um, a web development business and a training business, and they were both centered around the same product. And it was not a product that we were part of; we were kind of a third party vendor. And somewhere during our years, maybe year four or five, that product just lost market share and, and pretty quickly. So all of our income just went with it. <laughs> and so I was faced with, okay, what do I do now? Do I do I learn the new tool to build websites on and just kind of keep going? But I had been building websites for like 15 years. I'm like, you know, I'm kind of ready for something else. At that point, I looked for a job and could not find one. Um, so we trans we kind of pivoted the business to be a content studio instead. And it's always, always been a bit of a writer and... A lot of times, even for clients, like, okay, I build the website, and then I write the content that goes on the website, or I write, you know, articles for trade magazines or whatever. And so it took us a little bit to get that going, and then we had some residual web development clients yet, too, that just kind of stuck with us and didn't move to the new hot tools. Uh, so between those two, we made a go of it, but there was still a lot of couple years there. Um, and then we kind of got caught. We had, like, a really down year and then a really big year, and that cycle we ended up taking a tax loan out just to cover our taxes that year because we hadn't saved enough to cover them and then so we carried that loan for a few years to the time we got that paid off so while we were doing it i'm like you know we're borrowing a little against the future we're kind of taking part of our retirement early we're borrowing against the future a little bit to have this experience as a family and now we're kind of paying that back <laughs> mm-hmm. but it all worked out it did yeah yep. we got all those loans paid off and credit card paid off. And so we're looking much better now. And um, are you still in that content business? I am, but I have a corporate job now. So this is new. Um, When we got off the road, we actually um, ran the newspaper. There was a classic weekly rural, old school newspaper here in town yet. And I I got a job as editor and my wife joined me as the advertising director. And we did that for a couple of years, doing that out every week. And it was a, we felt like it was an important job. Like it's, we're kind of isolated here. It's an hour to anything from Ava. If you want to go to a Lowe's, you drive it home 20 minutes to Springfield. 
So where the newspaper really serves a local purpose here, just to be people informed and advertising and all of that. Um, but halfway through that two years, the the owner, who was a third generation locally you know, local person, retired, sold the newspaper to a corporate chain. You know, from that point, we just knew we wanted to fit. We stuck with it long enough to get the business transitioned over, and then I started looking for a job again. And lo and behold, I mean, the upside of COVID is oh, there were a whole lot more remote jobs out there, and, and I was able to get one. So I, I'm the managing editor for a global software uh, services firm. Congrats. Thanks. Yeah, it kind of puts together my, my journalism writing past and, and my software and technical side. Yeah, it's interesting to see, you know, everyone's career trajectory, especially coming from a town where everyone wanted to get a job at the same company. And that was the the consistent, reliable, safe path, which didn't turn out to be that safe. When, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <at all. laughs> um, but then, you know, to keep reinventing yourself and your career through over, what, 30 years now, 20 years? Yeah, getting up, yeah, getting up there. Yeah, uh, I think it's a good example uh, for other people and even my mom if you're listening I know she listens every week <laughs> my mom is a nurse and she's mm. right on the cusp of retirement or you know changing to something else but I can sense that she doesn't really want to retire because that's all she's ever done like that's been her job since college so I think it's really difficult to um, to break away from that the longer you're in one job and, you know, you start to question if you even are capable of having a different type of job. But, you know, I believe the brain is still still very flexible and adaptable um, to different things. And you've been able to go from yeah, web design to content and photography, writing, editing. Yeah. And, and you know, my wife is actually a nurse as well. And I just know if you've got the skills to stay in that job, especially over the past couple of years, there's there's dozens of other jobs you'll be well qualified for. Yeah, they are multitaskers, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. And so back to um, your RV life. So you guys are planning on hitting the road again, correct? We're trying to figure that out. So what happened was while we were at the newspaper, I, I got the itchy feet. I'm like, we've got to do something because just working and going back, you know, our house was a block from the newspaper and like, we're living in a three block radius. Here. Yeah. Um, but it's hard to get away from a newspaper job because it's, you know, it's very cyclical. You've got, you get one edition out and you start putting together the next week's edition. You, you can get a long weekend, but that's about it. There's no weeks off um, out of that role. So I'm like, let's just build we, we had sold off the RV, we didn't have anything. I'm like, let's let's sell the car that we've got and buy a minivan and we'll rip out all the seats and we'll just make a little weekend camper van out of it. And we'll put a bed in the back and just just enough to sustain us for three nights or whatever so we can at least go camping for a long weekend and get out of town for a while. So we did that and then the job changed. So now we're, we have the van yet, but we're trying to do like week-long trips out of it. So we're, it's kind of a continual build thing where we're, we're kind of modifying it as we go. So it's not like it's not a RV in the sense of a, being a technical RV factory built thing, but it's still a vehicle that we recreate in. Um, so we're doing that, but we're also just kind of evaluating what other options are out there. RVing is great and we have last, but between the cost of RVs, the cost of gas, I was just looking at some, some of the campgrounds that we used to stay in, and the prices are almost double what we used to pay. Wow. Um, How much? And, you know, 
Well, it, they ranged the, the one, the private campground that we stayed at back in West Michigan is 50 bucks a night. Wow. You know, the state parks, actually there's the state park in Holland, Michigan. If you want the primo spot, it's also 50 bucks a night. The cheaper spots are 42 a night or a tent spot, I think was 38 a night. And we were used to paying in the $20 range. Um, paying over 30 was rare. And I think the only place we paid more than 40 was maybe on the coast of California or San Francisco. So the costs are way up there. And, and there's a little bit of, like, we've done that for eight years. Is that really an adventure to go back to that? Hmm. So we're, we don't know. We're, there's there's a world called caretaking. Have you run across that at all? Uh, house sitting? Yeah, it's house sitting is in there. Or there's, uh, like, a bed and breakfast that will give you, you know, room and board in exchange for hours spent working for the business. Or there's like hunting ranches that just they need someone on site even when the people aren't there hunting just to kind of keep over you know watch over the place. Oh, I um, haven't heard of that. That's interesting. Yeah, there's a there's a magazine uh, caretaker.org I think is the website. If that's not it, I'll send you the note after the show. But I, I subscribe to that, so we get like a, a weekly newsletter of here's the current caretaker uh, opportunities and. They haven't quite seen anything yet, but there might be something in that space where it will get us out of Missouri for a while and, you know, go do something else. You know, as you know, we bought a house um, and as we fixed it up, I, I keep telling my wife, I'm, I'm fixing this up like it's a future rental. This is not the place that we're going to retire in. So anytime it comes time to choose fixtures or countertops, like it's a rental. Right. <laughs> we're, not putting, we're not putting granite countertops here. We're going to Lowe's and getting you know three form ones or whatever. Yeah. Because I don't I don't see this you know in this house for the next thirty years. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure something else out. But I don't I, yeah we don't know what it's gonna be. Yeah, and you've been to so many places around the U.S. Um, and you wrote a little bit in your book about you know how you decide on where to go. Can you give us some insight into how you made those decisions and some of the places that you would like to go back to? Yeah, so choosing where to go, um, we ran the gamut because it kind of depended on what mode we were in. There were, there were some mornings where we legitimately got up. My wife said, drive west, and I'm going to take a nap, and when I wake up, we'll see where we're at and kind of see where we'll stop. Um, and then there were times where, like, if we had a training class scheduled or we did some other work camping kind of things, that put us on more of a schedule. So it's like, okay, we've got to do, you know, 1,200 miles and we're going to divvy that up an X number of miles per day and find places along the way. So it was much more structured. And there were times too where you, I remember trying to get back to Michigan from Florida, but it was like hurricane season. So we're, we're playing like Frogger, <laughs> watching the weather. Okay, we'll stop here. We'll wait for that weather system to go through and then we'll move north again. And we'll wait for that weather system to move through. So the weather could play into it. Uh, friends could play into it. We we um, met a lot of other traveling families while we were on the road. Some of them were still friends with. Uh, and so they would be a draw, like, oh, look, you know, that family's over just, you know, 500 miles from here. Let's go aim that way and see if we can, you know, spend a couple of days next to them. So it was a constantly shifting dynamic of, you know, weather and friends and attractions and work um, that would that would go into deciding a route. And you had a second question there. Oh, some of the the places that you would recommend. I know in your book you have photos of a lot of the different places that you've been to. Uh, but just for the listeners, let's see. It looks like there's a hundred and 
something, 120 something locations in your book. Uh, what are a few of the standout destinations? Yeah, 126 chapters. And some of those are, there's more than one chapter from one place. So there's, mm. you know, maybe I don't know, a few places. But um, we just we, we had a really good time in Mesa, Arizona. Uh, a lot of, there's probably three or four stories in the book from Mesa, uh, just for different reasons. We, we worked there for a campground, and um, there's some cool history in that area. And I think a lot of it was just it was so different than Michigan where we were from that we just we were all kind of entranced by the desert. And then there's places where Kinston, Arizona comes to mind. Kinston is a smaller town. We only happened to go through Kinston because we were coming from the Outer Banks and we were going in. So it's probably like an hour and a half or two hours from the Outer Banks. And we, we found it because they have a city-owned campground that at the time was $12 a night you know, for full hookups, which is just crazy cheap. All right. Uh, on a river, no less, with Wi-Fi, no less. Wow. Um, so I'll yeah, just go there and, and get free camping. But we got there, and there was there was some Civil War history. So um, one of the old ironclad boats that they built in the Confederate War, the Civil War, they had built there. So they had like a model of that, and they had the remnants of it uh, kind of in the museum. And then there was a brewery in town. They were having an anniversary celebration, so there was a bunch of stuff going on for that. And then we met. Part of the celebration, there was like a sake tasting event. So I'm like, I haven't had sake. Let's go, let's go check some sake out. And the people that came in to sit next to us at that, we got talking. Well, what do you do? Well, we're on this RV adventure. Well, that's cool. What do you guys do? Well, uh, we're part of this TV show. <laughs> It ended up being they were part of a reality TV show on public TV called Chef and the Farmer. <laughs> and then they were the farmer. So it was the chef was a gal who grew up in an area, moved to New York City, got her training, and then came back and was doing like a farm table on a restaurant. And they were, they were running that as a TV show on PBS. And so we, we got to know them. And they invited us out for Sunday dinner and took us around the farm and we saw the pigs and soy gum. And that sounds great. All, you know, all of that out of a little town that you would you would you know, wouldn't look at if you were route planning. It just looks like, you know, nothing for us to do there. What was that called again? Kinston. Kinston. Okay. North Carolina. Yeah, there's a lot of places. Um, I'll drop the link in the show notes so people can check out the table of contents, but there's places I haven't mm. even heard of before. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like the Ho Rainforest in Washington. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a legit rainforest in the United States. That sounds very cool. Um, and then... You mentioned in the book that you and your wife are self-proclaimed introverts. And I think a lot of remote workers are, I think a lot of, um, I think a lot of people are in general. I think we're, you know, it depends on the day if you catch me introverted or extroverted, or you can be both. And one of the big concerns is that, you know, when you leave your hometown, when you leave all your family and friends and you kind of start over with no friends and no community, then how do you meet people? And and you guys wrote that you met more people, that your social life actually exploded when you went on the road versus when you lived at home. Why do you think that is? Well, I think, A, we're just around more people. Um, there were more people in campgrounds than there were in our neighborhood. But, you know, we purposed to meet most of the people that we met. So we would, we would kind of look, we would keep, I would keep exploring Instagram and looking for new blogs and just kind of maintain those social connections. And then I would say, you'd be looking through your Instagram feed going, 
hey, that picture looks familiar. I think they're close by. Contact them like, hey, are you guys in you know, Florida? Yeah, let's get together. Um, that just happened, I think, A, because most, both of you are mobile. So mm-hmm. you, know, and you can vary your routes. And, and B, if you're a, a traveling family, one of your concerns is that your kids get time with other kids. And so we, we very much wanted to meet other families just so the kids could get some time playing with other kids. And, um, boy, just especially in the wintertime, because everybody kind of compresses down in the, in the southern regions to stay warm, right? Right. Um, it's no fun and easier. bad weather in an RV. I've yeah. been there <laughs> in Iceland. Oh, yes. oh God. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Misery. wintertime, you can just about pick a park in Florida, and, and there's probably going to be a full-time RV family there just, just because that's how it works. And, and yeah, our... We just had such a good time meeting other people, and and there's just I don't know. It's just there's an instant connection. I think because you've gone through this big upheaval of realizing that this this traditional American life was just not working for you for whatever reason, selling your house, getting rid of your stuff, buying an RV, getting out there. You know, it's I guess it's you know veterans have the same thing. Like there's just a shared history of similar experiences that get you to that point that just, you know, becomes the basis for a friendship that just, you know, leapfrogs over traditional means. Yeah, that's true. There is this common ground in, in people who kind of opt out of that traditional system, whether it's in the U.S. or any country. But, um, yeah, that's kindred spirits, I guess you could say. Because, you know, people who listen to this podcast are from 170 different countries, but yet we all have the same thing in common, but we're all different, different ages, different backgrounds. And yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, I was going to say, we, you know, we actually kind of adopt kind of a badging system. I don't know. We all have these maps on our doors of the RV and you film the map where you've been and maybe collect stickers from the different places. But you could pretty well tell when a raid pulled into a camera. I'm like, yep, we're full-timers. Let's go talk to them. <laughs> oh, you know what? That just reminded me of um, one of the podcast listeners. Oh, I have his name written down. I have to look at my notes. He recommended this book two years before the mast. I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before. Sorry, guys, if I already talked about it, but... I've been reading it over the past couple months. I actually finished it on the day that I finished writing my book. I thought that was interesting coincidence, but um, it's about a student from Harvard in the 1800s. I think it was 1836. And he sails around Cape Horn from the United States to California, because of course, back then there were two different countries. Well, not even countries. They were just separated, you know, by the continent of America. And so I guess from the colonies to California. And he wrote in this book, he was one of the first people to write a book about California because it hadn't really been explored yet by Europeans uh, because it was so hard to get there and it was before the Panama Canal. So he was sick and I guess his family, they thought he would get better if he went on a boat in the fresh air and went on this journey. It was supposed to be one year, turned into two years. But what you mentioned that reminded me of the book is that he, he writes about how excited they were when they would see another boat and they would go ashore together, or they would actually sail over to the other boat 
and they began to recognize the other boats by their flags. And they would, even if they were sailing, if they weren't on the coast, but if they were in open ocean, they would see another sail, quote unquote, and they would try to go over and meet them just to be able to see other humans. And then they would get information on where they were from, where they were going, how long they'd been at sea, and they would share tea together and they would share a meal of salted beef or whatever they were eating, um, horrible food. And, you know, that's what we're still doing today, whether it's in these wooden sailing ships in the 1800s or in, you know, RVs in the 2000s. I think it's, it's pretty interesting how history repeats itself. And, uh, also interesting to hear that people would put, you know, where they've been on their door and with the flags and, and that's kind of become a sense of identity and it's our street cred. Yeah, street cred. And then are there ways to keep in touch now with, with other people? I'm sure there's apps and websites where uh, forums where you can keep in touch with other RVers. Yeah, there's a bunch of them and there's there's more even since we got off the road. You know, the, the ones that we've stayed close with is just through WhatsApp or email or Instagram. Okay. Like Insta- um, WhatsApp groups and things like that. Uh, just more personal to personal ones. Oh, Okay. So just start with one person, guys, and then meet people from there. Well, we're running out of time here, so I will ask you a few lightning round questions, just quick fire questions so we can get some more, uh, pick your brain a little bit more. What is a practical work tip that you have for productivity working in an RV? For me, it was headphones. Absolutely necessary to have full big can headphones to block out all the sound. <laughs> no, I can't live without my noise canceling headphones. I just wore them from the airport all the way an hour on the train to my hotel where I am now. Um, how did you do your laundry? Um, a lot of our V parks have it and otherwise we just stop at public laundromats. And oftentimes that would be one of the deciding factors in choosing where to go. If the campground had laundry and we had puzzle laundry to do, we might choose that campground instead. Ah, uh, yes. Priorities. <laughs> yep. Yep. And how, which company did you use to receive mail or how did you receive your mail? We used a service, um, and there's several of these out there, just mail forwarding services. We chose one that had addresses available that were kind of close to our hometown. Okay. Do you remember which company you used? Uh, I don't, and I think the service has kind of gone downhill, so I probably wouldn't recommend them anyway. Okay, we'll link to a couple in the show notes. I think yeah. there's <laughs> there's a post scan mail. There's there's a few. We'll we'll drop some yeah. like two or three links. Um, the big question: gas or diesel? I guess the answer is a little different <laughs> now because gas prices are really high. But what's your you know, take? So our so our diesel prices so. Um, this is one of those around the campfire Chevy versus Ford kind of things with, with RV guys, especially. I wanted a diesel because that was the common advice was diesels pull better, they last longer, they get better fuel mileage. I could not find a diesel truck that I was happy with for the budget I had. So we ended up buying a gas truck um, that had a, had a 
It had a big block motor in it, basically. It pulled really, really well. I was super happy with it. And I think, in retrospect, we spent less on maintenance than... It seems like everyone I talked to with a diesel had like, big repair stones. So we did, we did well with a gas engine. Well, my first car was a diesel, and it didn't mm. last so long. It was also older no. than I was. Okay. And my diesel in Costa Rica, that thing, the, the timing belt fell off. It's happened to a few of my cars. So, but it's happened to the gas cars too. So you had three different vans or RVs. If you could go back and do it again, which one would you buy first? Or what was your favorite of those three? You know, they all made sense at the time. So the first one, the first two were fifth wheels. And for the non-RV years, it's kind of pitches into the bed of your truck. Um, they pull nice, they hook up easily. Honestly, I, I, both of them made sense at the time. The first one was used and it was smaller, but then the kids got taller and we, we kind of wore parts of it out. So we bought our second one new, which is the first big new thing I've ever bought. But we had a really good experience. <laughs> what we did there was we were close to the factory when they were building it. So we actually went and visited the factory while they were assembling our trailer. And we totally bribed the workers. We brought fudge. <laughs> like, <laughs> anything, anything we could do to help them like, do a good job on this one, especially. Um, and it must have worked out. We had really good luck with that trailer. And then we wanted to downsize once the kids were out, so we downsized to a Class B slash camper van. And we bought an older used one that did some fix-up work on. But they were all good good decisions at the time, but I really don't have any regrets over any of them. Okay. Do you know what was the, I guess, the brand of the cars you had? The first RV was a Rockwood, the second one was a Wildcat, and the third one was a Quadruple. Okay. Got it. And I like that tip, you know, flattery will get you in everywhere <laughs> or fudge <laughs> in this case. Well, uh, yeah, we actually, we printed out pictures of ourselves. We wanted them to understand that we were getting this thing to live in, not just camp in. So I actually had to print out some pictures of the different things that we had done. And we taped that to the side of it. So as I went down the assembly line, they would give a sense for who we were and what we were doing. Oh, that's nice. So they're like, okay, this is really for a, a real person, a real human family. Uh, nice. And then um, any homeschooling or world schooling websites or resources you can recommend to parents? Uh, it was more my wife's domain than mine. Um, the biggest thing for us for homeschooling was realize how much less, how much fewer, uh, fewer resources we really needed because the location and the trip kind of provided that. You know, and that was... It was one of the obstacles for my wife because she typically did all the planning. And the year before we traveled, she had a really well-planned year and felt really good about it. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go on this big RV thing. And the planning for the trip took off all that time. So when we left, she's like, I, I don't have RV to plan. And I said, don't. I don't. I didn't want to get to Yosemite or Yellowstone and be like, well, yeah, we can't go see the park because the kids are still finishing their workbooks. Oh, Yeah. So we'll, we'll get her to um, give us some links to drop in the show notes then. Of yeah, what and I know, back, you know our, our blog is still out there, and I remember doing a really extensive blog post over all the different things that we've used. Oh, perfect. Just send me that link, and we'll, yeah. we'll share it with everyone yeah. for further research. And do you have any uh, RV, you know, getting started with RVing websites or resources that you could share with people that are new to this lifestyle? Uh, there's some really good 
books out there. There's a couple called RV Love, uh, Mark and Julie Bennett. And I think their first book is called Living the RV Lifestyle. I'll double check that. Okay. Um, I know it's a really good resource of how to shop for, evaluate, consider you know, the different RV types because the RVs come in every shape, shape, size, and price point. Yep. That's why I've never done it because there's too many options. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I it's wanna... overwhelming. There's a lot of RV rental websites, though. I mean, it's getting expensive. It's getting prohibitively expensive. But um, uh, Hippie Campers is one that I was looking at where you can rent in different parts of the world. So we'll link that up also. And then you mentioned in your book that writing the book helped you kind of process some of the the fears and the lessons of this whole experience. Um, what were some of those fears that you had or, or challenges? Different ones for different members of the family. For me, like when we were planning this, I had two main fears. One was weather and one was CPS. So CPS being Child Protective Services. <laughs> um, because, well, I'm like, we're already homeschoolers, which, you know, there's people out there that just don't think that it's a legit way to teach your kid. And now we're going to be homeschoolers living in an RV. And I just, I had this feeling we'll be in a campground and somebody will see us there in the middle of the week and call CPS because, hey, there's these kids there during school time and they're not in school. Um, so whether we kind of learn to deal with, you just you become your own, you know, meteorologist and watch the forecasts and kind of learn how to do that. The CPS thing kind of kind of came on us, so we we got reported to CPS at one point and you know, had a CPS visit out to the out to the rig, and so we, we had to go through that process, and that's that's in the book as well. Just kind of talking through how that played out, because um, yeah, it was not a fun experience. No, yeah, it's never fun when CPS is involved, but you got through it, and. What were what do you think was the biggest fear that was holding you back from from doing it at the beginning? You said that you were, you know, going around almost looking for reasons not to do it and looking for someone to tell you no and couldn't really find find that. What do you think was the root of that fear? Probably just breaking down somewhere and not being, you know, so the truck blows up or something catastrophic and we don't have the money to do anything. You know, what would, I didn't want to be in that position. You know, broke down on the side of the road in the middle of, you know, West Texas somewhere where there's nothing around and, um, and to be left there, you know, as, as the head of the family responsible for all the, you know, the well-being of these people. Um, being kind of exposing them to that—that's that's kind of what it, it was. Definitely a big fear. I, I'm sensing a pattern. I, I had uh, this guy Patrick, who's from a sailing family, on the podcast, and his brain seemed to default to the same equivalent situation, but in the water, like just capsizing and sinking in the middle of the ocean and killing his family. It, it seems like our brain wants to just protect us and it's serving up the worst possible case scenarios and RVing, it's breaking down in a desert and sailing, it's sinking in the Pacific ocean, I mean, which are all possible things, you know, that definitely happen sometime uh, to people and living in Florida. There's I feel like there's always stories of people like lost at sea and going missing. So it is scary. It's all legitimate fears, but um, 
I'm glad that, you know, things worked out for you guys. And how long would you say it was into that first year? You had this year of family adventure. How far into that year did you guys decide we want to do this longer? Uh, as I recall, I remember where, I don't remember how far we were in. It was in Cortez, Colorado, another one of those little towns. Uh, I think we were most of the way through the year, so maybe about 10 months, nine or 10 months. Uh, but if I looked at the map, we'd only gotten around from Michigan to Colorado, and like, there's a lot of country left mm-hmm. that we don't want to rush through. And realizing by that point, you know, we kind of found our, our road legs, so to speak. We got practice at moving the RV and just figuring out the mechanics of that. We figured out, you know, the working and the homeschooling and just you know, negotiating that small space and realizing that, you know, we could, we said we were going to do this for a year, but we could do it longer and there's more to see. And everybody was on board with that at that point because we, we kind of had a family meeting and said, okay, you know, us parents want to keep going on this. What do you guys think? And they were both on board at that point. Okay, good. So almost at the end of the, of the road, I guess it takes some adjustment there. Um, do you have any tips for with kids navigating, you know, who gets to use the bathroom first or <laughs> anything like that? Yeah, we got lucky in that our kids got along pretty well. Um, you know, there are one of the advantages of being in campgrounds is you've got campground bathrooms to use. And you know, in the RV world, you have people like to boondock more and you have people like to be in campgrounds more. We spent more time in campgrounds just because for that reason and other reasons, it was just more convenient. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they they learned to, you know, get dressed. You know, it's like a boy and a girl sharing a bedroom, basically, in a, in a small space. Uh, but they learned to get dressed in other rooms and, um, you know, usually use the, you know, use the campground shower so we weren't all showering in the rig. And then just amazingly, we just kind of figured out how to, how to negotiate. Um, the, the only thing... We had to lay down a rule. Like if you were in the bathroom with the door shut, you, you just, even though you could hear all the conversation in the living room, you could not be part of it. <laughs> That's a good rule. I could just, just see that. You just had to pretend that you could not hear it and you were in the living room. <laughs> the bathroom rule. Yeah. Oh, that's like being a backseat driver. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. And then my last question for you, how did travel change you? Oh, in a number of ways. Um, I think just those fears that we talked about, we, we kind of got over a number of fears. Um, you know, one of the family had a fear of drowning and we did some swimming and snorkeling that kind of got them over that and just grew in that way. I think, you know, we, we kind of boiled down while we were traveling, you know, why are we doing this? Well, we want to, we want to have simpler living richer education, closer family, and uncommon adventures. And certainly, I feel like we did all of that. We simplified our lives down, got rid of a lot of distractions and toys and stuff, and got got real focused with family time. The education was much better. You know, I I tell my kids, I expect a phone call when you're about 30, when it all sinks in, like what we did. (laughs) You know, Definitely found adventure, and you know, as I'm looking back through the pictures you know, and all the different things that we did, there's just no way we ever would afford to do those all on a, on a vacation basis. Yeah. And for me, one of the bigger ways it, it changed me was I'm not a I'm not a sports guy. I've never been a sports fan. So when when I meet like new guys, I don't I don't watch sports and I don't hunt. And so there's 
it was hard for me to find common ground with people to start a conversation with. And uh, traveling's really helped because usually I've been where they're from or close to where they're from or we've been to the same place, but it just gives you that kind of common ground to start a conversation with. Yeah, with people that are that are different. That's a good point. Well, thank you. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing uh, these experiences that you had and hopefully it gives people some motivation and inspiration that they can do it too. You don't have to have it all figured out. Just start where you are. And um, where can people read your blog or connect with you if they want to follow along with your adventures? Yeah, I've got a website. It's just my last name.com. So B-O-I-I-N-K.com. Uh, a blog there. I'm thinking about adding one back and still considering that. Getting this book done has left a kind of a gap. Now it's like, now what do I do with this time? I would, I would just go look on the book. Um, I haven't quite figured that out yet. <laughs> Yeah, we're in the same we're in the same position. I, I I'm in the one where I have so much to do that I don't even know what to do first. But yeah, it, it is a weird feeling when you, um, when you finish a project that took so long. How long did it take you to write your book? This was three years. Okay. So yeah, you heard yeah, my book to... writing episode, book writing tips. Yeah. Yeah, and that's kind of that's why the chapters. So this book is a collection of I call them feature-like magazine stories. It's not one narrative, you know, day one, we left, and then you know, day 2000 or whatever we do off the road. And one of the reasons for that was it was a way for me to approach the book and actually make progress on it. Like, I'm just going to do a chapter a week, but I don't have to tie this chapter in into this overall narrative plot. It's kind of independent, you know, and can go anywhere. So I, I could write in any order, and each, each chapter just had to make sense within itself. So it worked out well for me. Okay. Yeah. That, that, um, that's part of what I was talking about in the podcast is, you know, there's so many different styles of books that you can write and then how long it takes as well. I set up to three years to write one book very easily for some people I've seen, they had their book shelved for 30 years and then they came back <laughs> to it. So I think you did it yeah. pretty quickly. And then uh, we'll also link to, to your book on Amazon, Driven to Wonder. And then we're giving away two free copies of your book. And I will give it to the first two people to leave a five-star review of Badass Digital Nomads. <laughs> <laughs> Got to give some incentive. Yeah, there you go. So go ahead and leave your review and email me a screenshot to hello at travelingwithkristen.com. You can leave it on any podcast platform or on the website on badassdigitalnomads.com. And the first two people will receive a free copy of this beautiful memoir with many beautiful photos driven to wonder. Eight years in an RV with two kids. Thanks so much, Mike. And uh, thank you everyone for tuning in with us today and see you all again next week.